Welcome to Startup Confidential. What food and beverage industry players will never tell you that you need to know if you're running a startup. Let's do this. Welcome to Episode 70, the second part of my interview with Greg Shepard. Thank you, Gregory, for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So I wonder if we could switch briefly to my topic I crave to unpack for with some kind of story, but can you give me a persona, an archetype of the bad institutional investor? What are the signs and behaviors and language that should cause you to politely run? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that the way that they work is that there are the investors that represent the real investor's money, right? They're seen as investors, but they're just repping the, yeah. the money that's actually being put in by the people that have the money. And those guys, the more senior ones, will run out deal hunters. And deal hunters are going out there to, to talk to you and listen to your story and all that kind of stuff. They choose the ones that are good, that they think are good, and then they turn them over to the next person who decides on whether or not they're good or not. Well, those people that they have running around the streets, those are people usually right out of school, looking at pitch decks, doing some stuff. They don't know what they're doing. If they did, they wouldn't be deal hunters. They would be guys sitting behind the deal hunter looking at the finalized deals, right? So the first thing I do is if somebody is out there just hunting for deals, that's my first sort of red flag. Like I'm not actually talking to the person making the decision. Somebody that is making the decision has sent out somebody to bird dog deal. Is age the primary criterion you use? No, I mean, usually I go to their LinkedIn. I'm like, oh, they graduated a year ago. Right. And like this person's bird dogging for somebody else, but the somebody else is too important for me to talk to. And right there, I'm like, okay. Next. You know, yeah. There's a problem. Right. I can't even talk to the person. So that's one thing. The other thing is I'll look at the number of deals they invested in over a period of time and how many transactions closed. A cycle time should be like three to five years from the time that you have a product three to five years and you should be able to sell your business. So you take a five year cycle time. How many business did they invest in? And then how many businesses sold? And then you can see their failure rate. You can see how many of them plundered. And usually it's would, nine out of 10. I would translate that to seven to 10 for CBG listeners. But yes, okay, totally so, yeah. <laughs> it's a little okay, slower so, for us. <laughs> yeah, in tech, yeah. But you can see the numbers, right? You can see, oh, yeah. man, these guys did 50 companies and one person exited five years later or seven <laughs> years later, right? And you're thinking, what happened to the rest of them? That's another thing I look at. And then- They're I in law I, school, Greg. They went to law school. <laughs> yeah, they went. Now they're working for the VCs. Uh, right. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> or my favorite, they're a lecturer at a business school. Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. But, uh, there's a lot of those, right? There's a lot of like, <laughs> there's a lot of teachers, lecturers, people that they mentors, advisors, consultants, and stuff like that that are either one hit wonders or have never done it before or haven't been a practitioner. I mean, consultants sometimes are better because at least they've been down in the trenches with the entrepreneur talking about these things. A lot well, of consultant, guys, yeah, I mean, not to throw myself under the bus, but the consultant's only as good as the depth of their pattern analytic learning, and that takes time. Yeah, and what they've done, like in a conversation, you can quickly figure out, you know, how much in the ground experience. When you're starting a business, you don't need high level people. You need no. people that have been <laughs> down in the trenches because the first two, three years of starting your business is a friggin' hand to hand combat. That's a much better metaphor than the one I use, which is janitorial work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's very different when you're in the ground and you're down there and you're taking the beating. And a lot of times you're doing 50 things at the same time as an entrepreneur. Oh you don't have a team that can do a bunch of things and all this stuff, right? It's all just scrappy, you know, just yep. really scrappy. It takes a lot of grind, a lot of grit to get through it. And then you got this investor who's sitting there 
sitting in a big office with a window view on the corner, looking down at Alcatraz in San Francisco <laughs> with his air conditioner and his $250,000 base pay plus bonuses and car and all this stuff. And starting right there, how are you going to have a conversation? Who booked me in economy class? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. How are you going to have a conversation with somebody when you're coming from this perspective and they're coming from that perspective? I can tell you a story. I did a startup one time for this guy who was a trust fund baby from a very well-known company. He was a billionaire trust fund baby. And I did a round of funding and I was building this company. This was like in the eighties and I'm building this company. And the guy took the money out of the bank account and went and bought a Lamborghini, you know, cause his dad was given him money and the payroll bounced. And I'm like, Hey, I'm calling the CFO. I'm like, what happened to the payroll? And he goes, Oh, so-and-so took it out of the account. And I'm like, how did he just take it out of the account? And he's like, well, he's, he just took it out of the account. He's a signer on the account. And so I called that guy and I'm like, Hey man, you took the money out of the account. So we, people can't do their payroll. And he says to them, well, tell him to go to the ATM. That's what he tells me. Tell him to go to the, ATM. I'm like, dude, they don't have money in their account. So they can't go to the ATM and just take money out. And that is the Delta between some wealthy people and an entrepreneur. They don't even understand that there are people who don't even have enough. They don't have a savings account to just tap into. Well, it's funny. Would you say that's a red flag or is that just a reality you have to deal with with institutional investors that they're all like that? Or are there enough of those folks who actually understand that they're a privileged asshole? Sometimes they never know how privileged they are, but sometimes <laughs> they know how unprivileged you are. Well, that's actually great. That would be a huge, if they could even acknowledge that. Yeah, but that's not even that common. I mean, sometimes, you know, I've been in that seat where you're an entrepreneur and you're like, hey, um, you know, I'd like to get paid a little more because I'm barely getting by. And they go, yeah, that's not going to happen. If you want to get paid more, you need to do more sales. And I'm like, can you put more, <laughs> more money into the bucket that we have for sales? No, you have to do these things first. It's easy for them, right, to say sure, that and look at it and go, oh, that's the chain of events. But from your perspective, you're like, hey, I got to make my house payment. My wife's pissed off. My kid has to get braces, you know, and they can't understand that, that you have to live or you're distracted and distraction is not healthy for them and their investment. So while we're on this topic, I'm just going to go for it because I'm a social scientist. So I get to talk about shit like social class and you have to listen, even if you disagree. <laughs> you're welcome to disagree, but you have to fucking listen because this is my expertise from academia. What I've noticed is related to what you're talking about, which is in my industry, there are these huge trade shows. They're now half their size due to COVID. <laughs> but in CPG, there's been a massive acceleration of what I would call post-grad educated upper middle-class founders. So basically people who look, act, and have the net worth of me, James Richardson. You know, We're not super rich. We're not the 1%. We're not the children of the 1%. There's thousands of these folks starting companies. I think it's great that people are starting companies, but the level of naivete in which those people, and, and let's be honest, if you're upper middle class, you're already privileged, right? Including me, mm -hmm. right? You're already, you got a post-grad degree. You could have gone on and done something pretty straightforward. If you chose to become an entrepreneur, it's because you have some basic appetite for risk within your social world. That's unusual, but you're still a peasant compared to the people we're talking about at these institutional firms, including the general partners, and the amount of wealth they personally control. Mm -hmm. What I've noticed is these guys literally don't understand what it's like for an upper middle class person to take out a home equity loan, beg for friends and family money to go run with one of these businesses in the first three years, right? They don't. They've never they don't have a fucking clue at all we could lose the house. Yeah. They don't understand the gravity of the decisions that you make as an entrepreneur, but I mean, neither does an entrepreneur. <laughs> no, they don't, but I, I, I have more sympathy for them. I have no sympathy for the investor who has, I just can't take the time to respect that gap because 
I think a lot of these relationships would start off better if there would be like some ritual, church-like ritual where we acknowledge this power asymmetry. Mm. It was almost more functional, Greg, in the medieval period because the king was dressed a certain way. His peasants were honestly rather clearly peasants without talking to them. <laughs> he would show it was all very carefully demarcated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he wasn't confused that he was not the king. But in America, we have this problem where the super rich they actually want to talk to you like they're the same as you over drinks. <laughs> And I have witnessed this at conferences, and that makes me want to barf. Pretty runaway everywhere. <laughs> but, it's but it's like it's also an American problem too, because we just deny the existence of class. It's an American problem because, like, when I tell people, you know, I grew up poor, they don't believe you. <laughs> I don't mean like internationally poor. I mean American poor. Yeah, that route is completely different for them. You know, I can tell you, I had a conversation with a very well-known investor, somebody that everybody knows his name. I can't use it because of the story. But what he told me was he said, listen, I think that entrepreneurs and people just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And I'm like, how are they supposed to do that if they don't have any bootstraps? And he says, well, let me tell you a story. When I was young, I lived in a neighborhood and I used to pick apples off the fruit trees off my mom's property. And then I would go sell them in front right? This guy's worth billions. You know, my first thought is, well, did you steal the apples from your parents? Because, you know, if you're a regular person and you did that, you go to jail for stealing and selling somebody else's stuff, right? Second, you're in a neighborhood where everybody is rich and they have so much disposable cash and they see their neighbor's kid out there. I'm like, that's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you know? And that's this particular guy who is in venture capital, in the startup world, very well known, that's his perspective. That was what he said. Is you know, and I'm like, <laughs> and then there's other personas like people that don't understand just the value of a safety net. If you fail, you're homeless, and that happened. And I was homeless one time. You have to pull yourself up. You don't have a safety net. It's not like you fail and then you go call your mom and say, "Hey, I need some money because what I did failed." And then your mom just fires over some money and then you recover. And in these wealthy people scenarios. These startups that they invest in, or even the ones that do startups, it's games for them. It's not life or death. There is no safety net for a lot of other entrepreneurs. I have mad respect for the people that did it the way I did it, which is like, you go into entrepreneurship, not because you're rich or even because you want to be rich. I went in because I had no other option because I couldn't get a job. I couldn't figure out the whole application process and I had to create my own future. I didn't have a choice. And I think that is a true entrepreneur. Somebody that is like, I need to create my future by setting somebody else's future up. And that's the opportunity. Yeah. And I think that's very well said. A lot of entrepreneurs, including me, that resonates with their story as to why they're on their own doing their own thing. The super the neurotypical super rich are just milking a social class world. It doesn't take a lot of effort to recycle that privilege as a social scientist. I can take it from me. I couldn't even get into college, right? There's no way I could get in. I, I couldn't even get into the military. You know, when you're at that level, but you know that you can make things happen, you're smart. You're just not smart in the way that they analyze intelligence. Then you create your future. Some people go in to be rich and some people just go in because that is the natural route because there is no other route. And then you you found that you can create. That's why I started Startup Science, because I found out that 4% of people have the ability to get out from check to check living. 98% of them do it by through a windfall. And 75% of that group, the windfall is a startup, but then 90% mm. fail trying. So yep. I decided to dedicate the rest of my life to helping the ones that try 
succeed. You know, this podcast and all the information, part of that is obviously the investors. Most entrepreneurs start businesses because they're trying to get rich, not because they are rich. Usually what you see with the data is that they have a big exit and they either invest or they just they become investors or they go away completely. Most of them just go live a good life. You know, sometimes they'll do another startup, but yeah. you know, the safety net is there. So it's a different deal. What I'm trying to do is help those people that are marginalized. And that includes people that are neurodivergent like us, people of color, women, just everybody that has been marginalized, people without money for whatever reason, all those people give them a chance to rise themselves up by creating a curriculum and a path that helps them get through the minefield, you know, get through the gauntlet without stepping on the mines. One of those is the investors like this conversation. It's tough. Well, thanks so much for your time, Greg. I want to let you go. Thanks for your help educating my listeners. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I hope for everybody listening that this was helpful for you. So I appreciate everybody's time. I consider it honor. So thank you very much, James. Dr. Richardson's new book, Ramping Your Brand, is available now on Amazon. Please check it out and spread the word. And don't forget also to take his Founders Quiz to see if your team is ready to ride the ramp of exponential growth. You can download the quiz at rampingyourbrand.com anytime. And feel free to share your scores with Dr. Richardson anytime at james at premiumgrowthsolutions.com.